Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And it's time for our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA in indie horror titles that left an impression on us for better or worse. We'll chat about the brief Alone in the Dark Grace prologue, Purge Heretics in Warhammer 40,000 Bolt Gun, take a stroll along the shore and no one lives under the lighthouse, we'll avoid being gutted or attempt to do the gutting in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Game technical test, and last but certainly not least, rip keys from corpses in the Outlast Trials. Well, I am a broken record at this point, Neil, but uh, I am absolutely stuffed after May's horror offerings. Uh, just before the the summer, which I think in the past has been viewed as the slowdown <laughs> season, but at the same time, um, I think that we've proven that we uh, are always able to find a handful of things to chat about that are new that uh, have definitely left a uh, memorable impression. And this is certainly a month indicative of that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I look at June already and go, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, even knowing that, you know, I covered some of it already, but it, in the coming, it will be coming up. But still, um, a nice batch this month, I think. You know, we, we've got all types. You know, we have the good old fashioned prologue. We have an early access game. We've got a technical test. We've got an indie game. We've got a retro shooter. We could, yeah, it's a real smorgasbord of uh, kind of horror tastes and, uh, interesting as ever as a result and while it's a smorgasbord in terms of the genres and gameplay styles i think that uh quality is the factor that really does kind of be the through line throughout all Mm. of these titles and you know alone in the dark grace prologue being a fitting starting point this game was obviously just announced with the release date for this coming october which is very very soon and in the prologue um you are playing as Um, Grace Saunders, an 11-year-old girl delivering a letter when things go horribly wrong. And this is very much a prologue that I don't necessarily think is indicative of gameplay that's in store, but more so it's about the tone and the atmosphere of Alone in the Dark, which after all of these years, right, I think that that is the right direction to lead with with a prologue and that you really do, for the modern audience, have to reestablish for some even what Lone in the dark, Alone in the Dark Absolutely. is, but more importantly, you know, establishing why this is going to be distinctly different from other survival horror games. Yeah. And for my money, I found that this did a great job of crafting an atmosphere that did feel distinctly different in kind of leaning into that gothic bayou atmosphere, yes. if you will. I almost would say that it felt kind of akin to um, like Jumanji almost, right? You're exploring this old mansion. And then, you know, of course, you're expecting the uh, mansion to get progressively more and more fucked up. Um, and, you know, right from the get go, you kind of go from these very traditional, almost Victorian style architecture. And then you get out to this foray and it's like a swamp, mm. basically. The swamp has invaded the mansion that you're exploring. And Right from that moment, I was like, oh, okay, this is playing with the very traditional sort of format of survival horror. I'm going to explore this old spooky building, but they're making the outside environment of the world of Alone in the Dark come inwards, which I found to be unique in a way that didn't just feel more of like, here's the else world kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like with Silent Hill, not a dig at Silent Hill, but like with Silent Hill, it hits this pattern of 
you know, I'm going to go through this yeah. reality version of the environment and then I'm going to go through it again, but it'll be slightly more messed up. And in this, it was nice to see them use that Bayou setting as more than just the steam page description. Yeah. You know what I mean? You actually get to see some of those elements, whether it's creatures, whether it's environments in terms of like a swamp area, actually coming into the haunted mm-hmm. house in a way that, you know, as we saw in the prologue, as Grace, you have to actually traverse, right? I think the one sort of area that you come to that you can't necessarily get past on your own is the swamp area that has something inside of it, whether it's an alligator or something more uh, otherworldly remains to be seen. But, you know, it was interesting just to see how in her shoes, she has to like traverse this environment um, in a unique way, which is like knocking over this taxidermied bear. Um, But I think ultimately this did a decent enough job of just introducing us to the world of alone in the dark again, Mm -hmm. giving us some semblance of the type of ghost story or monster story that's being told here. um, But didn't necessarily indicate a lot about like what gameplay will entail, which, you know, we've seen snippets of it in trailers and whatnot at this point. I'm sure we'll be getting lots of uh, gameplay overviews and whatnot leading into October. But for you, what did you think of this prologue? Yeah. So, you know, I, attended the sort of preview sessions about you know where director Miguel Hedberg who used to work at Frictional Games, you know, famously for the games like Soma, um, you know, explained all about, you know, the mood and what they were going for and said about this prologue that, you know, that it is designed not to be spoiler for what's to come. It is very much a flavour to get context for what is going to come. And I think that's why this prologue takes on dream logic you know in how things are going because you know grace doesn't seem to mind what's going on really half the time and it's just none of it kind of connects together in that way that you would uh narratively expect and, and i think that works brilliantly as a prologue just have something that feels like a, a dream that collects the ideas of what you're doing you know, and it, it really does especially that as you said that section where it does just sort of bring the outside in um, you know, they're going for that Southern Gothic, Gothic style, and it's definitely there. You know, there's been so much talk about this Doom Jazz soundtrack that, you know, from the first time I went into a preview for this game and they talked about it and what Doom Jazz was, you know, that's where the Twin Peaks music effectively came from, you know, if you want to talk about it. And so I was interested and went in and naturally just went and listened to. And, Fucking now I love Doom Jazz. As a result, it's a short story before we even got there, so I was excited about that. Um, and it, you know, then to get the news that you know Jodie Comer and David Harbour are, are you know taking the lead roles in this, and you had that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I'm super excited. The really interesting thing about this prologue is that even that has a sort of spiritual connection to what Alone in the Dark was. You know, Hedberg was constantly sort of going on about, you know, how he was such a fan of the series growing up, you know, and how he wanted to capture that and also nod back to what had come before. You know, and Alone in the Dark 2 had a prologue of its own, which also featured Grace, you know, uh, at the time. So it's really cool to sort of have that sort of echo, you know, in what we're doing here. I mean, it's like 10 minutes tops, you know, to do this and if you're just going through it. But it really does just set the mood perfectly from everything I've seen and heard about this game. 
I'm so excited for it. You know, I mean, for something that is so abstract in terms of showing you what the game's about, it did the job much better than so many, like, one-shot demo-style things have done in recent years where I've played them, not been that impressed, and then found that the main game gave better context to what was missing in the demo, you know, where you are just, like, carving out a slice of something that in the main game by having it just be the standalone you know mood piece you are getting something that really just tells you everything without giving anything away and that's the way you should go i think you know we were you know we talked about it in horror bites there in the, this week where you know I, I compared this to a game that we played where you know it was short form and you know really got everything in in a really short period of time and this feels like the higher budget version of that, you know, where you are just getting your point across. And I love that. I love that we can have that in a higher budget space and you have that lesson be learned. And it doesn't surprise me, you know, Pieces Interactive, as I said, who is headed by Mikhail Hedberg, you know, it's it doesn't surprise me at all that you would get that kind of understanding of where horror has been and where it can be uh, and where indie horror understands the genre really well. So, Christ, yeah, so much about this game is exciting me. You know, the demo on its own may have not done that, but I think having the context outside of it really does help, you know, knowing that there will be detective and detecting parts that you can scale to whatever you want to do and how involved you want to be um and then having just general survival horror combat yeah i'm all for it as much as it's amazing that we're getting alan wake in the same month now (laughs) it's just this is something i never thought would be as good as it looks you know compared to where we were with this franchise with alone in the dark illumination the most contrary contradictory thing you could ever do to a franchise where you know you are not alone or in the dark you know and now we're here you know it is fantastic i'm so happy to see you know a game series that wasn't just screwed over because it was changed you know to different developers different owners whatever whatever it you know it just did its job you know, it, it got to come back. It got redemption in the right hands and the people who wanted to make it good again. Uh, and I think it will end up being good. I really do. I'm very confident that problems it may have will be minimal, really, when you go into it wanting something a bit different from what we've had in terms of the remakes and the reboots and reimaginings of recent of this year alone. You know, um, I'm so into this. So yeah, I, I really, really, really want to see how this goes. October cannot come soon, soon enough, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. And just to see, you know, a series that is effectively having to leave behind the gameplay of the original in favor of more modern conventions. And yet, by all accounts, from this prologue and from, you know, the talent that's involved behind the studio and whatnot, as you've mentioned... Mm-hmm. It just it seems like this is the most fitting circumstances for which Alone in the Dark can come back. And it from this prologue has really 
you know, I think has solidified the tone is very much in line with the original games, but at the same time pushing it forwards in certain yeah. regards, which is exciting. And yeah, I mean, geez, October can't come soon enough at this point. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, going to be a, a very healthy one. Uh, in switching gears from something that is rooted in classic survival horror to something that is very much removed from survival horror, uh, we are going to chat about Warhammer 40,000 Bolt Gun from Uroch Digital. And this latest boomer shooter utilizes the Warhammer brand in just about perfect fashion, I think, mm. um, because in this, you know, it is a very simplistic framework of you play a space marine who is once again trying to vanquish the minions of chaos. And yet, you know, coming off of uh, Proteus earlier this year, right, which is a game that we were both very keen yeah. on, I that is mo- ultimately what made me interested in Bolt Gun initially, right? Because we, again, have this you know, pixelated boomer shooter that has a more modern sensibility with gameplay. And, you know, you and I have talked off air about the Warhammer brand recently and just, you know, how recently it really feels like the Warhammer brand for games specifically is being a lot more refined, I suppose, in the types of projects, because there was a good 10, 15 years, I would say, where I feel like you would lose track of the amount of Warhammer games that came out because of how often and how frequently they were, but more importantly, how forgettable a lot of them it seemed to be outside of Dawn of War or, you know, Space Marine. And for something like this to take the Warhammer brand and it not just be this sort of like flippant, uh, I suppose, art aesthetic or something along those lines to like differentiate it from other boomer shooters... I found that Bolt Gun really takes that war, the world of Warhammer and makes it true to the identity of it. And first and foremost, like the environments of this game, I absolutely loved. I loved the variety of environments. I loved the detail in these massive, you know, gothic cathedrals, essentially, or battlefields that you're exploring. And it was one of those things where when I looked back at Proteus and I was like, is this just another flavor of Proteus? I was like, no, no, no. The environments in Warhammer Bolt Gun, I feel, do such a great job of not falling into the trap that some boomer shooters do for me, which is, I feel like it's this one never-ending level where it's like, okay, it's the same flavor of a hallway or of this environment. And with Bolt Gun, you know, I found that a lot of the environments do a good job of differentiating themselves to the degree that it gives you this you know, the battlefields of the Warhammer world, but at the same time, the more intimate sort of cathedral environments and whatnot, um, which right off the gate did a good job, I think, of allowing Bolt Gun to sort of separate itself from some other boomer shooters that perhaps have not paid as close attention to their uh, environments. Yeah, I think that definitely comes from having that rich history behind it, you know, of Warhammer and all the, the gubbins that go into it that, if you're coming into it and you don't give a shit about Warhammer that much, you know, beyond the aesthetic, then it's great because you can just be plopped into a world that feels bigger and you don't quite know why. But, you know, for anyone that does love Warhammer, you know, it really adds something special. Um, I think the tone of this game is not comedic, but, you know, it has a very dark satire sort of, vibe to it there's always been there i think with warhammer any 40k anyway where you know um to the point where you know people want to kind of look at the the heroes of this and and say you know they're, they're the bad guys let us play as the real good guy sort of thing and 
you know, I think it's almost pointed in this game that you, you have that yeah, and you have that taunt button uh, that is, <laughs> just gives out little you know, jibes at your enemies and but yeah, you know the thing that I thought most about this game was that it was like a first person Gears of War yeah, which I didn't borrow a lot from Warhammer 40k anyway but it, it has that slowness to it at times you know and that chunkiness and that up close and personal vibe, especially you know with your melee weapon, and I quite like that. You know, I thought it was um, it made a change from, as you said, you know, what we normally get from these sort of retro style shooters is that you know they they tend to be fast paced, they tend to be really you know, like going for the jugular in that way. But this just felt sluggishly heavy and visceral, and and that's not a bad thing at all i think it really fits considering you are a character in a suit of armor that just makes a really loud smashing clang when you drop from a distance <laughs> you know yeah. I, I love that it, it really gives a weight to you it makes you feel like this stupid badass you know and um yeah i i think it really constructs that story in itself really well the way you are just given the tools to just go and slaughter everything in your path and um, not much is going to affect you if you really want to play it the way it's supposed to be played. Well, I really do like that extra layer of strategy that is here, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that it is done so in a disservice to its boomer shooter roots, right? It very much can be this thing where it's like, I'm constantly on the move. I'm constantly vaulting over different objects, traversing the environment to get that one shot before making this big circle in this sort yeah. of arena environment to pick off guys. But, you know, and it's probably works in conjunction mostly because of the enemy types are not only so varied, but they have a variety of abilities mm -hmm. and also, you know, health and what these things like you come across like the heretics, which you can basically just drop with a single shot. But then you come up against not only, you know, different types of chaos demons and whatnot, but then there's chaos space Marines yeah. and, various degrees of chaos like juggernauts or i think they're called terminators actually but you know it's nice to have one of these shooters where you basically have enemy types that are not just defined by their weapon but also by their abilities yeah. which adds an extra layer of thought to combat that really does i think complement the sort of punchy chunky nature of combat as you said right you have these devastating attacks but if you get caught up too much in that power then you're probably going to get killed pretty quickly yeah. by some of the more difficult enemies. And you have to actually go into engagements with a little more thought than just the traditional sort of spray and pray mentality yes. of a game like Proteus, which is not, you know, a knock against Proteus. I think that for that type of game, yeah. it works wonderfully. And, you know, we gushed about that game at length. But with something like Bolt Gun that is coming into a subgenre that is so overly stuffed for the this game that by all accounts, judging by how some Warhammer games have been in the past, could have just been, you know, Doom, but with the Warhammer aesthetic, for this to have a distinctively unique approach to combat. And I would also say to um, the movement as well. The yes. movement has this sort of floaty nature of a platformer, right? Where you can leap, but then you get this little bit of like wiggle room where you can kind of like lean or hover to one side yeah. or whatever that not only comes in, t in hand with combat, but more importantly, uh, environmental traversal. Yes. And in that regard, you know, I think that this game, again, you know, being distinctly unique in, in the terms of its combat and also in just of its movement, 
really does make for something that feels distinctly different than a lot of other boomer shooters that I've played uh, recently. And, you know, it having a button dedicated solely to taunting where you get to call <laughs> enemies heretics and the emperor sent me to redeem you in holy fire. Like, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, and I liked also how it doesn't kind of jam the Warhammer 40,000 type storytelling down your throat. Yeah, you know, that's very, the part of Warhammer simple. that I've... <laughs> yeah, I've always been interested in the aesthetic in the designs of creatures and you know i used to make the models back in the day but if you put a warhammer 40,000 novel in front of me i would just i would use it for kindling probably because like that world is not interesting to me in that way but i think in terms of this game it does enough to just give you the context and then send you on your way to what the meat of the experience is which is its strongest aspect yeah i mean special props go out to that tone system being voiced by raul code you know if uh you know, of um, iZombie and uh, fame, it's uh, he really puts his all into that and uh, makes it sound. Uh, <laughs> I did not realize that was yeah. Him. It was only when someone else mentioned it. I was like, oh yeah, it is. It's like yeah. It's like, and I remember that he'd mentioned about doing uh, this game. It was like, and it being part of the reason I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, so yeah, it's um, you know, as a big fan himself of Warhammer, he's a. Uh, I look forward to Henry Cavill uh, doing similar <laughs> in another game. <laughs> oh, man. We can only hope. But, um, yeah, and once again, changing gears to a completely different subgenre yeah. of horror, uh, we're now going to chat about No One Lives Under the Lighthouse by the Morevo Collective. And in this, it has a very simple premise. A lighthouse keeper discovers there's more to the job they anticipated. So... If anybody is a fan of, you know, Robert Edgar's film, The Lighthouse, this is the type of experience that will probably be right up your alley in that, you know, very simple. You show up for the job, you wander the shores, you go up to the lighthouse and you start to go through the routines of a lighthouse wiki or a lighthouse keeper. And slowly but surely it becomes apparent that there's more to this island and the lighthouse itself than meets the eye. Um, I would say that this is the type of experience that would have been prime back in the day for you know horror bites in that old format right um it is something that is taking the mundane trappings of a job granted a lighthouse keeper is slightly uh more involving and slightly more unique than like (laughs) being a a shopkeeper or a, a manning a security booth but at the same time it abides by that idea of like putting the player in the role of a profession and walking them through what very quickly becomes mundane tasks and chores yes But in that sense of familiarity, the player is the developer actually is able to, you know, pull the rug out from under the player when things become supernatural or spooky or scary. Mm. Um, And, you know, for my money, no one lives in the lighthouse does a fantastic job right from the jump of crafting that atmosphere. Right. Yes. Of having you just start by walking, feeling, you know, basically feeling the uh, the pebbles on under your feet when you're walking along the shore. You hear the waves, you hear the seagulls crowing and whatnot, and it does a really great job, I think, of just making that a setting that doesn't feel too overbearing right from the jump. Because again, some time and time again, we've seen these types of experiences that are like, oh, we've got to get to the scary right away, right away, right away. And it undoes ultimately the payoff that something like No One Lives on the Lighthouse ultimately is able to achieve because it puts in that legwork that... For some that are not on board with these types of experiences, they'd say, well, it's a lot of walking. But I think for people like you and I, and I'm sure countless people that are listening that are into these types of experiences, it 
puts forward the work to allow this game's scares and the more overt horror moments to really truly pay off in a rewarding way. Yeah. I mean, when this game initially came out uh, on PC a few years ago, you know, it, it gained quite a following you know, from very notable people in the community. And you know, this console release, which is published by Torture Star, you know, again, Public Convo's label, and I think is the most distinctly different thing to be published. You know, it's a, a nice surprise in that regard. Um, and again, thank you for the code, by the way, when I mentioned this game. Um, the atmosphere, as you say, is such a big factor in why this is successful to the point where I was almost slightly begrudging of having to get into the darker side of things later on because it does such a great job at set of setting the scene early on that, you know, it's almost like, well, you know, it's going to get ruined because, you know, not in a bad way, it just, it, it's going to get ruined because the bad stuff's going to happen. And as you say, we've played so many games where you kind of know where that pathway is and where that's going to go. And this doesn't go down that path for most of it. You know, I mean, yeah, there are chase sequences and even those are handled in a way that don't really just conform. You know, the fact that they are viewed from the perspective of the thing chasing you, you know, rather than from your own sort of first person perspective is really interesting and really novel in how it does it but yeah, yeah, when I, I have to interrupt you for one sec just because that scene scared the absolute fuck out of me when it occurred <laughs> and we don't have to spoil it but when that chase scene occurs because of the fact that it is the probably the best example i have seen of someone understanding how you can use the player's you know familiarity with that routine yeah. of going through you know i have to get my candle i have to fill up this thing with oil to go power the lighthouse and whatnot you go through this sort of repetition to the degree that you have this false sense of security and when that chase sequence begins it was so startling (laughs) and so rewarding to have that just dropped on me on you know the third or fourth time that i'm going through this very mundane task which i think is obviously on purpose it becomes frustrating because you're like i am so fucking sick of filling this lighthouse with oil and whatnot or whatever cleaning up spots that show up to the degree that when you go through that brief bout of frustration with that you're like when is something going to happen and when it does happen and it is from that unique perspective as you mentioned which basically is taking a tried and true uh I, i suppose uh bit from one of these types of games but swapping the perspective so it's not like oh i'm still in my body from the normal perspective just running away like that is what really did sell me on this mm. game because I was just like, okay, they can craft the atmosphere, but is when the scary stuff begins to happen, is it going to be sort of a letdown or is it going to be about what you would expect? And, you know, towards the end of the experience, there is a prolonged chase sequence yeah. that I was not a fan of that's not done in the same way where it's messing around with the point of view and whatnot of you being chased. But I would say for a majority of the experience, this game does a really great job of subverting your expectations, yes. specifically subverting the expectations of people that go into these types of experiences and assume that they know everything that is going to play out because of the sort of blueprint nature with which some of these games uh, are seemingly being made with. This is not an example of that. No, and you know, we, we've talked so much about mundane jobs and how they are implemented into horror. 
And the thing this does really well is to tap into the horror of a mundane job where the best thing about it normally is that you know what you're doing, you know what's going to happen, you know what the routine is. And it's when something fucks up suddenly and you don't really understand why or how and how to fix it that it causes a stress, you know, and you end up feeling that stress and getting annoyed by it. And this, you know, paired with what's actually happening in the game happens constantly. And I found that really smart. You know, it really did just make that whole thing. Oh, shit, really? I've got to go do this more. You know, doing something one more time than normal is like one of the oldest video game tropes going in terms of quests and things like that. But when you are doing it in a way like this, where it's like it adds an extra wrinkle of time, knowing that you have to be out there in the wrong environments, and you know that that's going to affect this and this that, that. Suddenly, this really simple system becomes complex for no reason, you know, and it frustrates you and annoys you. But also, you know why? It's because. The reality is it means you have to go out there. You have to be out and vulnerable. And that's why it frustrates you. You want you want the comfort of a straightforward experience. And you know, that is that kind of job. You know, the, the mundane nature of it is fine in its own right. And you maybe you want something different, but you don't want something that different. You know? So, yeah, I, I was really intrigued by that, how they just managed to get that aspect of a mundane job yeah and you know in terms of the story that this is telling as an example of like maritime uh cthulhu type Mm. story you know i was appreciative of the fact that while i don't necessarily think i'm going to replay it to like find out other endings and whatnot it is very much one of those games where i'm sort of married to my experience with the game but being open to other interpretations of the overall narrative this is the type of game that really does capitalize on that in a way that, you know, it offers up all of these different variables of like understandings of what's happening, of what, you know, the story is actually about. But at the same time, and I should add that I believe there's three endings, mm-hmm. there's two or three endings. Um, but I think overall, you know, it has this story that, you know, asks more questions than gives answers. But at the same time, those questions are interesting and they are represented in a visual style. Yes. The further the narrative goes on, that is just as engaging, I find, as if you had gotten those answers to the degree. I don't even want answers, yeah. right? Because then it's the type of thing where, well, if you spell it out black and white, it's like, okay, I see that. And then you have your answer and you're done with it. But I think that when you have this visual style of storytelling that is very unique and can get very weird at times and not necessarily giving the player the answers that they maybe want it makes for something that I'm going to think about longer than if you just kind of point blank, tell me this is what that means. And you have complete understanding of what you just endured. Yeah. I mean, there's a standout scene that has long been a standout scene uh, with the game being out as long as it has on other on PC. And that is the lighthouse moth scene. Yeah. With that, that it is done so wonderfully because it's, so much of this game is not about drawing your eye to something. It's like it's you deciding to look at something and like, oh, what's that? Hang on, like that. You know, you, your head isn't forced. You're not being pushed to do things like that, apart from the chase sequences. And I think that is really well done. 
the meta story behind this game as well, where it is like you, know, you found this lost game, which is the game you're playing, you know, like this from an old era and like that is somehow cursed. It is nicely done as well. I like that because it kind of explains the slight modern touches, how it's not like games of that time. And, you know, how it has these extra things that don't make sense at that time. Yeah, it's a good way to sort of explain things away, you know, and um, especially the general ambiguity of it, you know, I think as well. So, yeah, that that is a, a touch that isn't, I mean, you wouldn't know it's there if you hadn't, like, read the description of the, the uh, product itself, you know, you wouldn't. Sure. You wouldn't know that it was supposed to be that sort of meta take on things, and you are just playing a game that was discovered, sort of thing. Uh, it, yeah, it, it's which to me is brilliant because it's probably the first real example of a found footage version of a video game. I mean, it's a found video game, sort of thing, sure, like that, sure. and it's cursed and things like that. And I like that. That and suddenly <laughs> I was like, oh wow, yeah. okay, yeah, we could do this more. Yeah, this is amazing. And, it's, mm-hmm. and now I look at it and think it's, it's kind of weird. We haven't had more of that. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. So yeah, yeah um, marvelous stuff, marvelous stuff. I mean, all around. I'm a few years old now. Is, is you know, the fact that it's come to consoles is beautiful. It deserves to be on consoles because it, it's um, an experience that has everything. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I know it had some problems pre-launch for some people on PS5, um, which I think have been remedied since. I personally didn't have those problems. But yeah, it is um, one of my favorite experiences of the year, Yeah, you know, I think, just because yeah, I don't think it's out there, you know, doing anything uh, wild or chaotic, but it's just so refined and defined in what it's doing. You know, it really just, just tell its story in its own way. It doesn't push you to, yeah. And, and the fact that Torture Star published this, yeah, and uh, for consoles, and that it is so different to everything else that that, that label has published. It's really comforting, you know. I, I really enjoy the fact that we are getting them, different takes on the genre from them, and it shows a good sign of growth. I think to have something this revered there, um, and I hope it ends up being more widely appreciated as a game for being on a wider variety of machines. I mean, it gives a uh, a wider breadth of variety, I suppose, to the Torture Star catalog. But also it gives that game or other games, if they were to get, you know, that same type of console yes. release treatment, it gives their PC counterparts a second wind, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that that's how I played it, right? I just went on to Steam and I was like, oh, cool. It's on Steam. So then I downloaded the director's cut and it's the type of thing where it's like I missed it initially and it being re-released on console was like, oh, that's an excuse to finally yep. dive into this game, um, which I think is probably more common than not, mm-hmm. I, would as- <laughs> I would assume, for, you know, people that maybe are operating in that space between, you know, they mostly play AAA horror and they play a little bit indie horror here and there, but that sort of getting it added to that catalog and that publisher and whatnot um, gives it that second win to maybe find more of an audience that just, you know, perhaps we're not in the know uh, of it at the time of the release and whatnot, you know, myself included. So no, I think no one, no one lives under the lighthouse is a, uh, a terrific example of that. Um, But we've gone from now single player stuff to we're going to dive into some multiplayer stuff, but 
we're going to take a quick break before doing so. And we are back from our break, and now we're going to dive into some multiplayer offerings from this month, that being the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the Game Technical Test, which is from Sumo Digital and published by Gun Interactive, the folks behind the Friday the 13th game. Um, so I also have to thank Evolve PR for the code for this. Um, but, you know, Neil, you and I have chatted about several horror multiplayer games, and, you know, we had that great conversation with Brandon Trush about Evil Dead, the game, yeah. which was another asymmetrical multiplayer game. And, you know, with something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, going to go into film mode for a second, <laughs> uh, that is a film that I am very precious about, and I know that you are a big fan of it as well, um, as, you know, most fa- <laughs> horror yeah, fans I mean. are. Um, it is, you know, one of the most beloved horror films, you know, slasher films out there. Um, and so while from a marketing standpoint, it's the type of thing where I understand why people get excited about their favorite horror series or characters being made into a multiplayer game. At the same time, though, I think given the overabundance of horror franchises from film that are being adapted into games, at this point, it's sometimes a cause for, I don't know about concern, but perhaps more often than not, uh, optimistic caution, I suppose, because of the fact that you can see how these sort of brands and IPs that are so beloved can be manipulated into something that at the end of the day, it kind of just feels like a flavor being tacked onto an experience that is not necessarily at the core of the actual film series that it is adapting. And, you know, considering I spent the weekend with this game, it's something that I am surprised at how much fun I had with it. Mm given that it is taking the asymmetrical multiplayer framework that we're familiar with, and it's sort of flipping it on its head in that a majority of the time, and it was the case with the Friday the 13th game, it's Jason versus eight camp counselors. And in the Texas Chainsaw, the game, it is three members of the family versus four survivors, Mm -hmm. which is the first example that I can think of where there's almost as many killers as there are survivors And, you know, that's obviously a byproduct of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film series having more antagonists than most slasher series. But at the same time, it fundamentally kind of rewrites your expectations, but also the experience of an asymmetrical multiplayer Mm -hmm. game where typically you're used to, okay, it's a bunch of us versus one superpowered killer. And in this, you might... Some people might be worried like, oh, well, does that mean that it is brutally difficult or it is not a fair experience because there's almost as many killers as survivors? But what I found was an experience that, considering it's not due until August, I believe, and this was a technical test, this felt very well-rounded, in my Mm. opinion, for both sides of family killers and the survivors. And, you know, it was the type of thing that I thought – Use the IP of the film series very well to the degree that, you know, you actually have four family members. One of them is not playable, right? which is grandpa, uh, who is this decrepit uh, relic, essentially, that can't even move almost. But, you know, he ends up being such a vital part of the family team. And the family team is comprised of, of course, series favorite Leatherface, the hitchhiker and the cook from the original film. And then you have grandpa, who is basically this non-moving figure that the other family members have to feed blood to. 
And then they level him up, essentially, uh, which is a hilarious gameplay mechanic that they were able to take this character that could have just been set dressing. Yeah. And they make that character an integral part of the family's sort of strategic abilities to hunting down the survivors and killing them before they can escape. Um, and, you know, that was a level of ingenuity that right off the bat, when I sort of go through that in the tutorial and whatnot, I was like, oh, okay. These are people that understand the source material and are actually adapting it into gameplay in a way that is really smart. Yeah. And that really doesn't just begin and end with Grandpa, I found. No. Um, but before we kind of dive more into that, uh, what was your sort of takeaway from this technical test? Yeah, so, you know, I I expected big things this anyway, because what Gunn did with Friday the 13th was, you know, whatever you might think about what happened with it, you know, most of that really came down to you know things out of their control at the end of the day but the core of what that game was was so interesting and at a time where you know it was very much a sliding doors thing where dead by daylight was going on to be the success story because it was so bloody simple and so very refined you know that's fine it works for that game but it was just a bit more to what friday the 13th did and what it did especially well was capture the idea of what Friday the 13th was, you know, you know short of sex mini games, I suppose, but yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, there are things you can't do, I suppose, but still it really got the idea of what it was going for. And, you know, the thing that impressed me most about the whole experience was that, wow, you know, it, it was something that knew the series, you know, this was a bunch of people who knew what they were doing, knew license they had and were making the most of it where they could you know and i hold on to that game very fondly and so i know many people that do um so yeah i was very much looking forward to this anyway you know um i have more love for friday the 13th than texas chainsaw personally but yeah that's a you can't not like texas chainsaw as a series i think that dynamic in that first film really comes across uh well in this game so far um yeah i i think the most refreshing thing is that you have this change in the asymmetric landscape where yes there is an uneven team side but now you have a bit more of an edge to the hunting side and you have a team still yeah they have they have the advantage overall and they have there's a playfulness to this already that is really intriguing and really fits the tone of that film especially yeah i'm i was discussing this yesterday where it's like if you're leather face you know and you have to do that whole little mini game of like revving up the chain you know getting the chainsaw to come out you know uh, you can't just have it on all the time to then just sort of chase people and just like rev your chainsaw up. You know, it makes, in most games like this, you know, we've seen, you know, being quiet, gating out of the way is the idea. You know, if you're the killer, you just try and sneak up on people. But this game loves to get the point across that you can antagonize the victims, you know, and really, because you know all the key things, you know where the doors are, you can lock the doors, you can shut their way out, you can funnel them where you want them. And I love that aspect because you don't have that normally because you are one person and you don't have the control. But when you communicate, and even now, I had people communicating really well in terms of saying what they were doing, where they were going, who they had, uh, and sort of coordinating as a group. 
And that with the juxtaposition of like how the family are, where they sort of bicker about each other and you know and, and shit talk each other behind their backs, and which is again perfectly in line with how that family dynamic was, um, and how they all revere Grandpa and you know want to make him happy, and it, it's a really smart system. You know, <laughs> I, I had a moment on Twitter last year, where, you know, with Matt Scotcher of. Um, film media about you know where i sort of bemoaned the fact that there were so many licensed you know online multiplayer horror games you know i wasn't really taking anyone particular to task at the time i think it was just the latest that come out which i think was the announcement of killer killer clowns, killer clowns. Yeah. yeah so it's nice that we get these it's great and i know it just you know could it be anything else and you know I, like while i didn't include gun in that feeling because i felt you know that if anyone got the short end of the stick with all this in the past it's them but this has just shown me exactly you know the thing i shouldn't be worried about that really because if you are going to have the innovation and you can this is proof you you can take um the online horror space and make it something different that isn't just a game desperately trying to be the next Dead by Daylight or the next Left 4 Dead and god how many times have we seen games try to be the <laughs> next Left 4 Dead and fail um, because yeah, that model is basically untouchable um, and Dead by Daylight for all, it, you know, for all its own personal flaws it's simple enough that it keeps on working you know you can get people interested again in a heartbeat by just adding one thing here, one thing there. Um, so yeah, but the general frustration we had with Gun, you know, and what happened with Friday the 13th, you know, with the license problems that ended up killing that game effectively. Um, I was so stoked when I saw that they got this, you know, and they had another license to try. And, you know, as I said, very confident they would do well with it. And they have. I think, yeah, I think whatever else you can say about, you know, the problems that existed in um, getting that Friday the 13th game in, you know, the intentions were good, the, the execution was there. You know, I, I think if they'd been given the time that many other sort of live service games have been given, that game would have gone on to be a fucking Stone Cold classic. Absolutely, you know. And uh, this now feels like. Yeah, that second bite of the cherry, whether they'll get that chance and we'll get that game. Um, yeah, as much when we talked about Evil Dead you know, being this big game that you know did not do that formula really well, it still very much fit within that formula. And I know it has its fans, but it, it didn't feel very long term. And, you know, that may well be the case with this game. Yeah, it's like it's something you'd like to play. But I think the dynamic is just more refreshing here and really does do something that makes you sort of sit up and take notice and go, oh, okay, and this is something else. I, I can really go for this. I can really yeah, get into this dynamic, either side, as you say. Uh, because in each dynamic, they are designed with those characters in mind. You are given the tools to, as a killer to be... You know, sadistic and gleeful and playful. You, you can piss around with your victims ahead of time if you really want. 
And with the survivors, they feel like survivors. It feels like a survival game. You know, not like you're a bunch of teabagging dickheads. You know, it's, which, God, you know, Dead by Daylight's biggest problem is that. It really does just address the the elephant in the room for the genre, for that sort of genre of horror game, which is that, you know, 1v4 it just doesn't work if you haven't got the balance right, you know, and you have to have outside sources. I think, you know, behavior have kind of realized that as Dead by Daylight has gone on and like had characters that have things that do that. But I think this idea of having, yeah, uneven teams, but still having communication between players on either side doesn't make you feel alone you know in a way that you used to so it, it, it as a dynamic i think it is the key selling point for texas chainsaw massacre yeah for me also you know not only having when you're a killer having two teammates alleviates a little bit of the anxiety that i have whenever i'm playing a killer like that's why i can never get into dead by daylight because it's the type of thing where i'm like Okay, well, if I slip up once here, then all of a sudden it's all it's all on me, right? If I keep slipping up, then eventually I'm going to screw this match for myself and they're going to end up winning. And so having two teammates alleviates that for me. At the same time, though, what I really, really like about the approach with the killers is not only the fact they give you the means to taunt your survivors, which is, as you said, revving that chainsaw is not only empowering when you're the killer, yeah. but more importantly, it is fucking terrifying when you are a survivor. Yeah. Hearing that saw revving, because, you know, this is one of the strategic elements with Leatherface, who by all accounts is the sort of brute force of the three uh, three family members. You know, you can hear that chainsaw when it's revving uh, or when it's on, rather, even if he's not revving, mm. you hear that faint ting, 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 ting. And, you know, that is something that when you're playing Leatherface, you have to contend with. It's like, OK, am I going to run around with the saw ready to go or am I going to run around with it completely silent? Yeah. So that way, then once you see them, you can then, you know, fire it up and then chase after them with it revving. Um, But I think more importantly, what I like about the killers is that they can fundamentally alter the environment to make it more difficult for the survivors, which adds this extra strategic layer past just, you know, whatever family member you end up as based on their weapon or their personal perks or traits or whatever. It's more about... You know, there are certain parts of the environment that only survivors can pass through, which are these basically shimmying through this tight squeeze of a wall or climbing over some type of obstacle or climbing through these little almost like um, I suppose they would be uh, metal chutes that like livestock could make their way through. But they're too small for like Leatherface or one of the other family members to get through. But when you come across those things as a family member, you can either destroy them or you could literally like stick your weapon through yeah. them to get at somebody that is on the other end. And like that additional layer of strategy that, you know, plays in tandem with the communication between the family members, I'm so appreciative of because there's growth there then mm. for additional environments, which you already sort of see in this technical test. I think there were either two environments or three environments, but more importantly, you can see that, you know, the environments themselves have a layer of strategy yes. that players can rely on other than just your innate ability to, you know, use your skill or your perk or whatever at the most opportune time. Um, and again, like taking it back to the grandpa, which really is at the core of the family strength, which is that he can call people out, basically the survivors and be like, oh, they're in this location. 
go there. And so through ensuring that in addition to hunting and killing survivors, you're also, you know, collecting blood from various bins that are around the different house. Or, you know, if you stab enough people, you can get their blood and then feed it to grandpa. Like mechanics like that, I think, is pushing sort of the, I suppose, the pre-described idea of what these asymmetrical multiplayer games typically are Mm -hmm. in the horror space. And it's just adding more layers to it that makes it more complex. But at the same time, I didn't necessarily find it to be something that is, I mean, it's granted, it's not even out yet, but it feels more approachable than something like A Dead by Daylight, which every time I try to dive back into that, I'm just like, oh my God, there's how many skills that I have to master or how many hours I have to put to get to this ability. And it it feels overwhelming. Whereas when you're coming into something like this, it has three characters, but the way in which they work in tandem with one another, it makes it feel more inviting, I suppose, as somebody like myself, who I would describe as a novice yeah. when it comes to these types of horror multiplayer games. Um, I also am just a fan of the overall the risk-reward nature of uh, noise, mm. basically. Like when you're a survivor, everything you do makes noise. If you run into these kind of like bone traps or whatever, yeah. it alerts everybody in the area. If you are trying to like rip out one of these bone shards from a pile that can be used to stab a family member that kind of stuns them, yeah. that makes noise unless you're careful. And like the risk reward of that is a feature that I think really does capture that movie magic that the original film did, which yeah. is like if I make one scene, I'm going to be getting my fucking head cut off with a chainsaw. And this game is able to capture that terror in a way that I think a lot of these horror multiplayer games do. They want to, but they very seldomly actually achieve. Mm. Um, and so from just, you know, a long weekend with this technical test, I'm so pleasantly surprised by Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the game, in a way that I admittedly was not. You know, I was like, okay, this will be a nice flavor of a movie that I love and a series that I love and applying it to a multiplayer formula that might feel very familiar. And I can say that it didn't feel familiar. It felt refreshing. Mm. And felt exciting in a way that I was like, oh, okay, this is one of the multiplayer games I could see myself diving into for tens of hours. Yeah, I mean, like I said, less of a surprise than the next game we're covering. But still, to have two games like this come out and be like, wow. You know, at a point where I was kind of burnt out on what multiplayer horror is and was because the best examples aren't necessarily the, the most popular. Like, you know, I think of Hunt Showdown, you know, and, and how wonderfully that does stuff. But, you know, I, I understand why it isn't popular because it is so complex and um, you know, needy as the game goes. This is, as you say, really accessible in a way while still having a sense of wonder and experimentation that comes when you start it up and you get given instructions to a degree, but you have a lot of stuff that is still like, well, where do I go? What do I do? What, you know, and, you know, while you aren't learning what to do, you know, and I, I would say this straight away, I recommend starting as a killer, you know, starting one of the family members because you will learn the map better that way because you have that freedom to, and that will then in turn help you in being a survivor, especially at this early stage. But, Hopefully by the time this episode goes out, I, you know, this uh, test is done and dusted, but you know, it's something that will still apply when you go to the main game, I, I feel. Um, yeah, I, there's not much more to say about it other than that. It, you know, it's a technical test. It still 
definitely you know got a little polish to go but i think it's already in a pretty decent state yeah lessons have definitely been learned uh, from that friday the 13th experience and it seems unlikely they'll get uh, the license clawed out from under them, you know, like the the last time. So, yeah, redemption story seems unfair, you know, because I think it wasn't really it wasn't really their fault with Friday the Thirteenth in a lot of ways, but it is kind of a redemption story because if this turns out to be as good as this technical test has shown then mama, it's going to be a fun time. And the fact that they basically have Kim Hankel's blessing as well. Not only did he consult on this, but the fact that he gave them his blessing to expand on the family. You know, they have granted this is all, you know, the the roadmap for additional content for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game. But the idea that they are going to be expanding on the cast of killers that are not in the films in a way that, you know, to know that they have that backing from someone that is so integral to the film itself saying like, Hey, yeah, I'm trusting you guys with this brand to go off script. Yeah. But in that trust, you know, clearly it, it trusts them to go out and make something that feels like it is a continuation of Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. is something that has me incredibly excited for just to see the ways in which this could grow from this potential, which is still very early, but I think is a strong indication of, what the final game will shape up to be. And, you know, who knows? We'll probably get another technical test between now and August, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but we will see. Even if not, I mean, um, I can wait. And I think yeah. um, it'll be technically one of the quieter ones when that does come out. So, uh, sure. yeah, I, I'd be all for just playing it again then. You know, I had my taste of it, and I kind of want that to be it until the game comes out now. Mm-hmm. I think because, yeah, not just because there's not a lot to do but you know in a week where i've had so many games to play mm. the fact that you know i thought well i you know the test is here i've got to put my time in you know and and get my time with and uh just it taking up far more time than i expected because i was so into what it was doing and wanting to learn the nuances of it that's a great sign that, that really is a great <laughs> sign and um i like I said, I really don't want to get too deep into that until the game is out now. Um, yeah. And hopefully yeah, the, that will be, I mean, at least on a par with the, the fun and excitement I had with Friday the 13th, you know, with the knowledge that it's not going to get killed by outside sources. Sure. Yeah. But uh, in transitioning slightly into another multiplayer game. Um, This one, though, being a complete surprise, I'm going to jump right into it. Um, So our final game for us to chat about this week is the Outlast Trials from Red Barrels. And, you know, you and I are on record at this point about our feelings (laughs) on the Outlast series, which we don't have to dig in too much, just that for those that don't know, uh, we have not been fans of the Outlast series. Yes, um, and Harris and Harrison Abbott is very wrong yeah. in, in his love yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> A shout out to our buddy Harrison Abbott, who I'm sure we are going. We have enraged many times with our opinions <laughs> on the Outlast series, but hopefully we'll uh, we'll win some goodwill with him with uh, our final chat for this week. But with the Outlast trials. It's slightly different than what people are probably expecting if they're fans of the Outlast series in that those games were single-player narrative-focused, whereas the Outlast Trials 
is something that is multiplayer focused, mm. though you can play it in single player. Um, but in this, it focuses on test subjects for the Murkoff Corporation in a mysterious Cold War experiment that is set in the same universe of the previous games, but the structure of everything is very different. Mm. So essentially, you are going to go through these environments and you are going to carry out a series of tasks that can be completed on your own or with up to three friends or randoms. And through that, you know, teamwork and whatnot, you go through these environments, you do these different sort of, uh, I suppose it's the same series of tasks, basically. It's like collecting keys or something akin to that. And then you're trying to survive until you basically are able to flee the overall area that you're in. So I would say that from a gameplay standpoint, it's not technically all that different from the Outlast games per se, in terms of you're going to be using bottles and things that you can distract people. Um, you have your night vision, of course, but this time you've ditched the camcorder in favor of having night vision goggles uh, quite literally drilled into the sides of your head, uh, which is a nice bit of bo- body horror touch up there. Um, but ultimately, what I'm really interested in with this game is the narrative that provides context for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, a chief complaint that you and I have had of the Outlast series up until this point is that it always kind of felt a little tryhard, I suppose, in terms of trying to be horror, where it is taking these environments and it's basically filling it with seemingly as many decapitated bodies as it can because that's scary or that's, Mm. you know, what the trend was. You know, scary was in big air quotes there. Um, (laughs) But I think ultimately what I really do like about the Outlast Trials is the fact that it has these distinct settings For instance, the first one is a police station that you're going through. The second one is a theme park. And, you know, they are both filled with their fair shore of corpses and whatnot and dilapidated maniacs and the likes patrolling them. But what I like is that there's this mystery tying it all together of you understand, okay, they're doing these fucked up experiments for some greater purpose. You don't know what that purpose is, but just that slight bit of context I feel it gives more weight to overall mm. to like going through these environments and interacting with these, you know, maniacs, if you will. And the fact that each of the environments that like, this is another chief complaint that I had with the Outlast series was that in the original game, it was this kind of like, yeah, you're in a mental asylum. There's crazy people there. They're going to try to get you. In Outlast 2, it's like that was like half of the game was just fields basically and crazy cultists, right? It's kind of this. What you see in the first 15 minutes feels indicative of the last 15 minutes. And with this game, I'm a fan of this sort of breaking up chapters and environments because of the mission structure. But each of the environments feels singular singular in the sense that it's like, okay, this is a police station. This has its own theme to all the horrors and the monsters that you encounter. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the theme park, right? And I like the fact that you're getting a variety of environments and also the baddies that are within it you know in the police station one for instance one of the guys the main guys that patrols the corridors is this like it looks like a cross between the village people and a cop but he's got a cattle prod right uh and he's always like trying to put a cigarette out in you um which is you know fantastically fucked up for the series and then in the next one there's like this crazy woman that has a puppet but in the puppet's mouth is this massive drill (laughs) that she's not afraid to get close and personal with uh you and other people And so, you know, that gives this game a layer of, I don't know, I suppose originality to each of the sections that I was appreciative of because I always got burnt out on the Outlast games because it felt like the same thing over and over and over and over and over. 
And in this, not only can you play for, you know, 30 minutes at a time if you want, mm. based on how long a trial takes, but ultimately it feels like there's just more of a breath of fresh air with which they're approaching each section of this game yeah. um, that I was very much a fan of. And it kept me in, I mean, I probably played five hours of it uh, just over the last two nights because I just kept coming back to it. And even if the gameplay loop is pretty similar, it's like, okay, hunt down these keys, hunt down this. I think in one of them, you have to like execute a snitch basically, which you find the guy and you push his cart until you can open the next door. And while you're avoiding monsters um, at the same time though, that core gameplay loop of like hiding in the shadows, distracting them, yeah. utilizing um, the various sort of like batteries so you can charge your headset and also, you know, dealing with um, getting poisoned and things like that from different enemies. Like that's a, a good loop, I think, for this and yeah. the sort of the replayability nature of this game in that each of the levels has multiple challenges that will open up new parts of that environment, which I was really a fan of. Yes. The fact that... You're not running through the same area over and over. There's like different layers to those environments. Um, it has a nice progression, I suppose, to how you explore mm. each of these environments. It makes them feel ultimately larger than they probably actually are. Yeah, because progress is so slow, I think. You know, yes. Because you are constantly on edge about what is ahead of you and what you've got to do. And that is a really good thing to do in horror game is um make a small environment seem big just by the fact that a small distance covered feels like you know know, doing a thousand meters you know because what's involved in in getting there is strenuous to say the least and yeah the the game does that in various ways you know whether it be carrying something that means you are moving slower or just knowing that you have to kind of sort of zigzag between routes to avoid certain people it it has something each time that just sort of turns what wouldn't be a very arbitrary quest into something that is tense you know really intense um and this game is so good at that you know um, i think the greatest credit i can play here is that um it takes the best parts of Outlast, you know, it takes the idea that those games had and actually makes them work in a context that works, you know, it, you know the environment you are doing it in makes more sense. Um, you know, my interest in this game was piqued when I heard about their inspirations, you know, when, when they talked about films like uh, Saw 2 or Cube. Or even the Mancurian candidate, and you know, some literature as well. You know, uh, the CIA uh, manual of trickery and deception, or Robert J. Lifton's uh, thought reform and psychology of totalism. You know, these are things that really feed into this idea that they are just trying to brainwash the people involved in these experiments. And while all of it. You, know, you could roll your eyes at it in terms of like looking from afar. You know, in terms of the situation these people are placed in and the way it's structured, it makes perfect sense. And it's the first time for me in this series where it makes sense like that. You know, where you take the very basic ideas that were hidden throughout those previous games and make them into something that means something. 
You know, they, they have weight behind them. Which is nuts, because why is the multiplayer game the one that is doing that? That, that is um, <laughs> yeah. having the reason and the, the wherewithal about it that, that really makes it all work and connects everything that you would have had in those earlier games. And I get why, because we've often discussed how games of that era, you know, when horror was on its lagging phase, you know, there, there were games designed for the burgeoning YouTube market, you know, and trying to get reactions from the, that sort of uh, audience. They'd be designed in a certain way. And, yeah, you couldn't help that. I think we've moved past that, thankfully. And, uh, yeah, here we are. And now they're able to make a game that is, you know, whilst being very, you know, shocking in your face, uh, visceral, is still able to be subtle and, you know, nuanced in ways that uh, weren't possible before, maybe. You know, just, just because of the environment they were in. Not, not necessarily because of the developers. And I think that's a big realisation I've come to in playing the Outlast Trials is that it's not about red barrels and their, that studio's ability. It's more about they were catering to an audience that was there at the time. And I wasn't that audience. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah, happens. Neither was I. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, it just happens. Um, yeah, when we were talking about this before with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the you know the studio has tapped into something that makes sense. You know, in this uh, online space where it's something that works on your own, works with other people, and there's great depth in both that um, make it really interesting and um, provide fresh nuance and fresh wrinkles that you you can get. Yeah, and you know, as somebody that is not the biggest multiplayer gamer, as I've uh, gone on record many times mm-hmm. in saying, you know, this was one that I was really surprised at how well this game plays, both in single player and then, you know, decided to spread my wings a little bit, play with some friends and yeah. uh, randoms in this, just to get that kind of taste of this experience, if you will. And, you know, the mechanics of this, it's kind of shocking how well it works for both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the new aspects is that you have perks which you can either, it's basically, you can either stun a guy, you can blind an enemy, you can heal Mm -hmm. allies, or you can use x-ray, which is like looking through the walls. Um, And, you know, seeing all those abilities work in tandem with one another makes Outlast this really strategic multiplayer experience, which is not a thing that I would ever assume (laughs) that you could say about an Outlast game. And just seeing those abilities all work in tandem with teammates and whatnot it makes for a lot of moments that are more memorable than the entirety of the last two games that I've I mean, played. Yeah, honestly, um, it which really is. <laughs> is, I mean, so, so incredibly satisfying, but also um, something that I'm appreciative of is like the variety of the baddies that you encounter mm-hmm. throughout. Like there are these, like the guys that hide in um, hiding spots that will, well, obviously as they're hiding, uh, these types of guys that when you get too close to them, they grab you and they make a lot of noise and you basically have to like beat them off of you. And then, you know, you have the bigger guys that have enough of a variety where there's like a brute guy that just kind of like swings wildly that you can't even really anticipate what direction he's going to look in. Um, But then you also have the like scarecrow enemies that are 
probably the most terrifying enemy that I've faced in a game recently because their presence is always announced by this basically like an alarm bell. Yeah. But you don't necessarily know which one of these doors that are located throughout this testing facility they're going to run out of. So like one time I was basically – the way that you get keys are you have to get elbow deep in a corpse. And it's yeah. either going through their head uh, or their neck or you're going through their guts basically to find this key, which is a nice uh, outlast touch if you will. <laughs> but one time I was doing that and then the alarm went off and this scarecrow enemy basically like stepped out of the door that's directly behind me. And I got sprayed in the face with this stuff that they have. And then basically that makes you hallucinate until you find a cure. Yeah. Like little moments of chaos like that. When you're playing with people that are actually working together and they've got the items that you need and whatnot and vice versa, like it makes for this really great layer of an experience that doesn't always mean like, oh, you got su you got found. So that means that this match is over. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of wiggle room, I think, in terms of what the player is able to do and adapt that makes for a multiplayer experience that doesn't feel, I suppose, as final as some of them that I've played have, where it's yeah. like, oh, you got caught, so I guess we should just restart. There's more of like, oh, no, we can actually like retreat, regroup, and then finish this in a way that uh, actually sees a good result. Yeah, I think when we go on about um, you know, working in solo play or multiplayer play, it's the fact that the game is designed that way where you can just do it on your own. It, it's harder without a shadow of a doubt and you have to be slower and more methodical about what you're doing and really think. And the balance of having other people there is that, yes, technically it is easier in some ways, but the unpredictability of one person getting caught out by, you know, getting those hallucinogenic drugs or like going the wrong way and setting the wrong person on you can change you know, a, a match in an instant. You know, you will suddenly just find yourself in up shit creek before you know it, you know? And it's amazing how quickly that can happen. Um, all the coordination in the world doesn't matter if someone steps in the wrong place because you know, the, the way the environments are, are structured means that you are going to come into something you're not used to and um that's brilliant i mean that's the most refreshing thing to me about the whole thing is yeah. that it doesn't just follow that tired thing that outlast was and tries to embrace chaos in a way that can change gameplay very quickly and and really digs into this whole thing that it's going for and the idea of like experimentation on what human nature is and you know how people will react in certain situations and that is really cruel and sadistic but it works perfectly for a multiplayer experience when when you think of anything in multiplayer you know, it's always about your negative uh, experiences with other people really you know as much as you can have bright sunny experiences with people uh cooperating with you you always remember the times where people have fucked you over or, or like <laughs> or, or they've done the thing that they shouldn't do and this game really does just tap into that it really gets the idea of like um every man for them, themselves but you know we'll work together as long as we have to you know, that royal rumble thing you know where it's like it's like there can only really be one winner when you think about it, but in the meantime, we all try to work together until 
that situation comes up and it does you know in a microcosm it comes up where you know you will do well together for a bit you'll have harmony going you'll communicate well and then something will get thrown up that will just change the perspective for at least one person and everything goes out the window and it, it creates fresh chaos and you might as well have been alone from the start and i think that is a really hard thing to get right in a multiplayer game so yeah hats off hats off yeah structured chaos is the best kind of chaos and i think that this is the type of game that i would never expect to i mean taking the gameplay format of multiplayer which i'm not a fan of and taking the horror series i've not gotten on with for the past two entries (laughs) and combining it into something that has ended up being honestly one of the biggest surprises of the year for me i thought i was going to spend you know, an hour or two playing this, and I probably put like seven or eight hours into this because I go. just I'm such a so involved in like the world and that context. And even if you know, I don't know how much the story is actually going to play out in a meaningful way. At the same time, though, I think that the world and that context, and you know, bopping around this fucked up environment, but then seeing somebody with a clipboard behind plexiglass staring at you, taking notes on like this crazy cattle prod wielding cop coming over and stabbing you with it. Like little moments like that Mm. are just like so much more interesting in the context of this world, I think, than uh, what we'd previously seen. And, you know, when you get a good group of people together playing this, it just makes for an experience that I can't wait to see more of. And this is only in uh, early access. So there's definitely, you know, more, not only more improvements to come, but also more content coming. Yeah. I mean, you know, they've laid it out quite nicely. You know, they understand where they're going with that. And some of the things they're talking about, you know, like, you know, random events, even in the hub, hub place you go to where it can change the dynamic of it on a whim. I like that. And, you know, I th- the whole meta thing that's in this game of just like pushing players to go through their fears and go through certain situations and see how they react. Yeah, that really does just sort of call back to this whole beginning for this series, you know, where it was very much based on YouTube, YouTubers, um, discovering this game and reacting to it. And having and how that really made it such a popular game, um, and here we are just taking it full circle, you know, where it's like now that is the experience now, but the viewer is the developer effectively, just you know, deciding how well you're doing and the only way you can escape it. I mean, the simplicity of the story is here is like there's no mystery really. The, you know, the, the solution to your story is. Do everything you are asked to do and be successful at it and you can leave and that's it. And you go out into the world as their product effectively, you know, a puppet to be um, called upon when the time calls. And that's amazing. You know, I love that as an idea. Your victory point is basically submission. You know, and um, yeah, that is a, a really smart, idea for a, a video game and again yeah as you say possibly the biggest surprise uh, i think of the year in anything not just in horror but i think in any video game thing uh, it just uh i really did not expect this level of experience and to see like this is such a big swing mm-hmm. for a series that has been 
you know, single player, linear focused, narrative driven, and to see them with the third entry deliver something that is entirely the antithesis yeah. of that um, is really wonderful to see. And it's one of those nice surprises that we don't get enough of. But at the same time, you know, it's a studio, it's seemingly reassessing. And that's not to say reassessing in lieu of, you know, critical or financial failures or whatnot, but just in general, like viewing what they have been doing and saying, hey, we need to do something different. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be removed from entirely from what we've been doing, but just seeing a studio pushing themselves to do yes. something different with a product like this. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get an Outlast 3, and I think they've even said as much down the line. We'll be getting one of the another you know single player mm-hmm. linear narrative focus games, but I think that in the meantime, getting something like this that is as strong and doesn't feel like this kind of derivative spin off sort of speed bump to the bigger full fledged sequel um, is very refreshing because it's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice to have two multiplayer games this month that uh, really did sort of like click all the boxes yeah. for me. It shook things up. For both of us, yeah, seemingly. Yeah, I mean, it shook things up yeah, in a way that, yeah, my, my main complaint was that they weren't going anywhere generally. And um, to see these uh, efforts like this, you know, one from a studio I kind of expected it from, but, you know, I can understand the uncertainty behind. But for another that I had no confidence in, none, of it, none <laughs> at all, you know, yeah. and uh, to be proven wrong like that is great i find because all it means is you you get something good out of something that was a negative for you so yeah it's it's a win for me in that regard it's a win for all gamers i think and you know while we might not always be in the majority for whether something works for us or not it's nice just again to see that uh studios are trying something new and can yield positive results and in some cases more positive than what past endeavors have uh done but yeah, that's going to do it for uh, this overstuffed month of the inventory. Uh, yeah, like I said at the beginning, this is a month that uh, it, it's one of those months that stands out as being like, can they top it next month? And while that answer might be yes, at the same time, uh, I'm happy to be as overstuffed as I am with this smorgasbord of uh, horror titles that we've uh, chatted about this week. But yeah, as always, Neil, it is a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Indeed, until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. Follow our Horror Bites Twitter page at HorrorBites underscore SR. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And finally, you can send emails to saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we've covered. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday. <laughs>